which had seen hundreds of thousands of soldiers sacrificed in the war. The British Army had not had a decisive win until Monash took charge of the Australians in mid-1918. He was as ruthless as any commander on either side, but it was anathema to him to fight unless he had prepared so meticulously that he was certain of victory. Anticipation of a huge breach of the German defences only minutes away before dawn set him on edge on this cool summer morning. This was his biggest battle so far. At 4.15am, Monash stood on the steps of the chateau, ready. Most of the German army was catching precious moments of sleep. Enemy sentries were oblivious to what now sent a shiver up the Australian Corps commander's spine, A hundred thousand of his infantry, spread over twenty kilometres, waited for the signal to start the attack of Amiens. Some were already crawling forward to get within seventy metres of the German line. It was about to be hit by the biggest single artillery barrage of the war. 4.16am All feel to make sure their bayonets are locked, Monash recounted, or to set their steel helmets. Company and platoon commanders, whistles suspended near their mouths, glanced at their watches. They gave a last look over their command. Their runners were by their sides. The officers, detailed to control the direction in which the infantry would move, had their compasses set. Carrying parties shoulder their burdens and adjust the straps, Monash imagined. Pioneers grasp their picks and shovels. Engineers take up their stores of explosives and primers and fuses. 4.17am. Monash's heart beat faster. His blood pressure would be up as it always was at tense moments. Less than 600 metres from him, his machine and Lewis gunners whispered to their magazine and belt box carriers to make sure they followed up. The Corps' Stokes mortar carriers slung their heavy loads. Their loaders checked to see whether their cartridge haversacks were in reach. Planes kept buzzing overhead. Tanks clamoured forward. Monash, the battle commander, was also Monash, the manager. He spared a thought for the scores of telegraph operators. They sat by their equipment at HQ with their message forms and registers ready to hand, bracing themselves for the rush of signal traffic there would be a torrent within moments. Dozens of staff officers spread their maps at Bertongle and in the field behind the lines. They would use coloured pencils to record the stream of information. 4.18am. In pits and trenches, the last guns were run up, loaded and laid on the opening lines of fire. 4.19am. Scores of sergeants checked the range. Layers stood silently, lanyards in hand. The section officers, watchers on wrists, counted the last seconds. Thirty seconds. Twenty seconds. Ten seconds. Fire! More than a thousand guns began Monash's beloved symphony. A great illumination lights up the eastern horizon. The whole complex organisation, extending far back to areas almost beyond earshot of the guns, begins to move forward. Out in the field, gunner J.R. Armitage recalled, All hell broke loose, and we heard nothing more. 
The world was enveloped in sound and flame, and our ears just couldn't cope. The ground shook. Lieutenant Colonel Arthur Wilson of the 7th Field Ambulance, who controlled more than 400 men, 29 vehicles and 17 horsed ambulances, noted in his diary, At 4.20am, zero hour, the barrage opened with a terrific crash. Fortunately, the retaliatory bombardment was non-existent. The attack had come as a complete surprise to the Germans. Reflecting the concerns of his vital part of the operation, Wilson added, The one thing of which we had the greatest fear, that is, an intensive gas, mainly mustard gas, bombardment, as the men formed up on the jumping-off tape, did not eventuate. One of Monash's staff, Major Walter Berry, said, Sir, this is a most wonderful day for you. Monash put his hand on his shoulder and replied,